You may be seated, and let's turn to Job chapter 11 this evening. Lord willing, I would like to uh, get from chapters 11 through 14 as we kind of enter into another inning here of dialogue between Job and his three friends. Of course, we've seen uh, Job at God's allowance enduring a tremendous amount of suffering in various different ways in his life. And as he's been processing this suffering, he hasn't been processing it alone. These three friends who came to spend time with him and to offer comfort initially, then began to enter into dialogue with him. And they're kind of trying to process together exactly what is going on and the reason for the suffering and helping Job to kind of reason this out. And they've been giving their ideas and suggestions. Then, of course, we get Job's rebuttal following each one of these. Uh, as we've seen, kind of the predominant thing they've been continuing to try and do is to kind of overturn every stone in Job's life to see if maybe just somehow there's a stone he didn't overturn yet, and maybe there is something that is triggering the cause uh, that he's responsible for for the suffering that he's enduring. Uh, Zophar is who we see here now give his insights in chapter 11. It seems many believe that Zophar was the youngest of the group. He almost seems to be in some ways kind of a little bit of the most severe in some of his words. Uh, And sometimes, you know, I think those of us who have been uh, conscious of our younger years uh, tend to kind of realize that in our younger years, uh, before a little more wind gets knocked out of our sails, we, we do kind of tend to be a little bit more cut and dry and sometimes maybe a little bit more severe and brutal in our words. You know, age does has a way of uh, kind of bringing a little more grace into your lives. Sometimes you realize you don't have the answers to everything. You're not always right. And uh, Zophar kind of seems to be a little bit of that kind of know-it-all type personality a little bit. You sense in some of his tones and the ways that he'll speak to Job in this book. So uh, we'll look at chapter 11 at Zophar's comments and then chapters 12, 13, 14 is Job's then response to those things. So it tells us chapter 11, verse 1, then Zophar, the Namathite, answered and said, should not the multitude of words be answered? In other words, it seems that as much as being discussed, certainly I have an answer for this. Uh, And again, sometimes when you have a little bit of that know-it-all attitude, that's kind of the mindset you have. I have the answer for this. Uh, you know, I, I know for those of us who have been parents, you, you ever tend to notice that it seems like that everybody has all the answers to parenting except for those who actually have children. <laughs> those of us who have children realize you don't have all the answers and you don't get all the answers. You're kind of just figuring it out, just like doctors are constantly practicing medicine. You're, you're always practicing parenting, and, and every time you get a different flavor and a different dynamic in each child, and you're just – it's constant learning and growing and – uh, you know, a lot of times those who aren't doing such things seem to have all the answers. And so far, is not the one suffering. So it's easy when you're not suffering to say, let me tell you the answers and some of the reasons for that. He says, certainly these multitude of words, I've got some answers that some of you, Job and the other guys, Bill, Dad, and so forth, you haven't come up with yet. And he says, should not a man full of talk be vindicated? Should your empty talk make men Hold their peace, and when you mock, should no one rebuke you, he says. Maybe you just need a correction, Job. That's the problem. No one's been stern enough to do that yet. Verse 4, he says, For you have said my doctrine is pure, and I am clean 
in your eyes. Now, this goes to show you here a flaw in what Zophar is doing because nowhere in the midst of this dialogue has Job ever claimed sinlessness. Nowhere has he ever said, look, I know I'm completely pure and I'm completely clean. There's nothing that I've done wrong in my life. There's no guilt. Job's never claimed complete innocence uh, or perfection. Uh, in any way. He's acknowledged that he's a flawed man like everyone else. And this just goes to show you that what you see Zophar doing is Zophar is apparently doing a lot of talking, but he's not doing very well listening because he's kind of putting words in Job's mouth that Job's never said before. Uh, And sometimes one of the greatest mistakes we can make sometimes when we're dialoguing with someone who's going through a difficulty is they start to talk, and rather than just allowing them to finish talking and taking the time to listen to them, we automatically start computing in our minds the answers, the ideas, the solutions that we have, and there may be only three, four sentences in, and we're just waiting for them to cease or just even take a breath so that we can kind of intervene and start giving our ideas and our answers or whatever. And the unfortunate thing in doing that is we end up a lot of times misinterpreting what people are saying, we end up, you know, sometimes maybe kind of gathering they're saying something that they're really not saying. And had we done a little better job of listening, we've done a whole lot better. You know, I've always loved that proverb where it says, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it's a folly and a shame to him. Boy, that has proved itself true so many times I know in my own life experiences you know, maritally, we can do that with one another in conversations with people. I've watched that happen with lots of other people in situations where that's what happens. People start answering and responding and reacting before they really hear something out. And there's not full listening and dialogue. And if you answer a matter before you really hear it out, you usually end up committing folly in the process. And you kind of end up having shame come back on you because you realize, "Mm, man, if I really just kind of maybe listened out a little further, I might not have jumped to that conclusion and made some of the mistakes in the way that I handled or responded or maybe even spoke to someone. And that's exactly what Zophar is doing here. He's kind of putting words in Job's mouth that Job's never even really said by claiming what he does. Verse 5, he says, but oh, that man or that God would speak and open his lips against you that he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. So he kind of expresses his longing. Job, you know, would to God, he says, that God would just speak to you directly and get your attention and correct you and give you some wisdom so that you wouldn't keep spouting off and claiming the things that you are. Look what he says at the end of verse 6. He says, know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves now this is again is a good reminder of how sometimes certain things can be true in their principle but yet we can misapply certain things that may be true principles certainly it is scripturally true psalm 103 declares to us that god doesn't treat us as our sins deserve that is god is always tempering his treatment of us with lots of mercy and lots of grace. I mean, if God were to give any one of us what we really deserve, we'd be in big trouble, big, big trouble. And it is true that God in his mercy and in his kindness and forgiveness at times gives to us way less of discipline, consequence, even judgment at times when God judges 
Uh, you know, it tells us in Isaiah's prophecy that judgment is God's strange work. The language really indicates that it's a strange thing for God, even when he has to judge. The idea there is little, it's actually uncomfortable. It's, it's something that feels foreign to God when he has to judge, whether it's a nation or an individual, because he doesn't delight in judging. It's not his preference. And certainly it is true that God doesn't often treat us as our sins deserve. That principle is true. However, the way this is being used here in this particular section by Zophar is Zophar is basically saying to Job here, look, Job, do you realize you're just getting the abbreviated version? If God really gave you what you really deserved, man, you would really be hurting. I mean, you think you're hurting now. Now, keep in mind, how do you think that would feel? Job's just lost 10 children. He's just lost all of his money all of his property, pretty much all of his livelihood. He's lost all of his health. He's tremendously suffering. And now he just had somebody say to him, oh, Job, you're not even getting near what you really deserve. You want to talk about adding insult to injury. <laughs> Job, this, this is just a minor thing. If God really gave you what you deserve, man, you have no idea how much you'd be hurting. Now, I'm sure that's, the, that's probably the last thing anybody wants to hear when they're suffering. Well, God's if you realize how mad God really is at you, you would really be suffering tremendously. He says, verse 7, can you search out the deep things of God? Almost implying, I can, but you can't. Let me do it for you. Nobody can search out the deep things of God, but the idea is kind of he's going to say, but I can, so let me tell you what's going on. <laughs> he says, can you search out the deep things of God or find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, the place of the dead. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. So he says, look, Job, no one can fully understand what God's doing, God's ways, and God's working. But he says, but let me take a shot at it for you. If, he says, verse 10, he passes by in prisons and gathers to judgment, then who can hinder him? In other words, Job, if, if God chooses to imprison you in this suffering to keep you as a slave to your misfortune he says and judge you then who's going to stop him who's going to hinder him for he knows deceitful men and he sees wickedness also will he not then consider it for an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. Notice what he accuses Job of there in verse 11. He knows, talking of God, he knows a deceitful man and sees wickedness. What he's implying there is, Job, apparently you're a deceiver. You're giving the impression that you're walking with God and all is well between you and him, but God knows that you're a deceiver, and you can't hide being a deceitful man from God, even if you may be hiding it from us somehow. If, he says, verse 13, you would prepare your heart. Now, look, he's going to start to give Job counsel. Again, Job, nobody really knows what God's doing, but let me tell you how to correct your problem because obviously there's some deception and some undealt with, again, wrongdoing, something going on in your personal life, and God's dealing with you. So he's going to say, you got to get right with God, Job. Again, he comes back to this same mindset. If you would look, just prepare your heart. Stretch out your hands towards him, Job. Just You got you to reach out to God. You must not be doing that. Verse 14, if iniquity were in your hand and you would put it far away. Job, you got to get your hands clean. Your hands are involved in some dirty business, apparently. He says, get the iniquity. 
out of your life, put it out of your life, and would let wickedness, would not let wickedness dwell in your tents. The idea there, again, is he's allowing something evil or sinful to be going on in his personal life, in his family life. Job, there must be some wickedness going on inside of your family tent. And he says, you're allowing it. You're permitting it. So, so God's just exposing you and dealing with you. He says, don't, don't let wickedness dwell in your tents. No, that's good counsel. If it's true. <laughs> I mean, it's good counsel if there is something wicked going on in your personal life, you want to deal with it. But the implication is that this is going on in Job's life, and that's not the case. It's assumption that this man actually knows what's going on in someone else's life. And look, we always have to be careful. There's a vast difference between knowing someone who is in deliberate sin. Maybe, again, it's come to the surface. It's been revealed. It's been confessed, right? We've all seen that transpire or maybe been in a situation where somebody confesses to you something going on wicked in their family life or, or somebody, you know, a situation arises where it comes to the surface and, okay, it's God brought it to light. And now it's out in the open. Okay, then we need to deal with that. And we need to clear the wickedness from the tents and, and deal with the sin. But if that's not the case, we have to be very, very careful to automatically jump to conclusions to think there must be something going on in private and just come to that assumption as if somehow we're God and we can sniff out someone else's sin and discover it and therefore kind of blame them for what's going on in their life that's causing difficulty. He says, verse 15, then surely, the idea is if you would put sin out of your life, then surely you could lift up your face without spot. You'd have a clean face to look towards God. Yes, you could be steadfast and you wouldn't have to fear anymore, Job, because you would forget your misery and remember it as waters that have passed away and your life would be brighter than the new day. Things would get better, Job. Just repent and Things will begin to gradually get better in your life. Though you were dark, he says, you'd be like the morning. And you would be secure because there is hope. Yes, you would dig around you and you would take your rest in safety. You would lie down and no one would make you afraid. Yes, many would court your favor. The idea is you'd, again, have favor with God and with people once again. Blessing and prosperity be restored to your life. He says, but the eyes of the wicked will fail and they shall not escape in their hope. All they have to hope for is death, loss of life. So, Job, that's my encouraging word for you. Anything you'd like to say in response to that? Well, he's going to speak in response chapters 12 through 14. Then Job answered and said, and this is where I appreciate the humanity of Job. Verse two, I would have loved to heard his tone. No doubt you are the people. And wisdom will die with you. Now, there's a bit of sarcasm going on there. Job, in essence, having heard all three of them, now Zophar takes his shot at Job and shares all these things. And he says, you know what? I mean, you guys are the man. I mean, you, just you are. And he says, quite honestly, uh, if, if tragedy were to strike and the three of you would die, wisdom would disappear from the earth. I mean, there'd be no wisdom on the earth anymore if the three of you would die. And I'm sure at this point, part of the reason Job's saying that is because he's thinking, if I had an extra hand, I'd strangle all three of you at once <laughs> just to get rid of you, to get rid of your wisdom. So he's just saying, look, you guys think that you know everything so well. It's almost as if when you die, wisdom will disappear off of the earth. You're the only ones, apparently, that have such great wisdom. He says, verse three, but I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. 
Indeed, who does not know such things as these? Again, what Job's implying. Look, I'm not doubting that some of the truths and principles you're stating are accurate, but you can't just broad brush those things across everybody's life. And see, that's where we can really get into mistakes sometimes, is even in learning biblical principles and spiritual truths or things about God's nature, which are true and accurate, and then we try and take things and we try and just broad brush them across every situation in every person's life, sometimes we can make a really big mistake in doing that. We need to learn how to walk in wisdom and seek the Lord and have discernment and and extend grace to people and realize that things aren't always just cut and dry, black and white, our own little neat box. Again, we start trying to put God in a box, then people into our little boxes inside of our God boxes, and we can start to make statements and assumptions about people that many times are very unhelpful. And it doesn't help them in their situation, and it honestly makes us end up being someone who just a lot of times may stumble them worse. We may end up you know, speaking in a way that's not appropriate and giving the impression that it's actually God that's speaking to, to them in that way when it's not really God. For example, let me just read to you briefly. We're going to launch forward here. I'm sure you wish we were in chapter 42, but this is what it says in chapter 42, the last chapter, as God's addressing these counselors. Chapter 42, verse 7, And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliaphaz, the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends. For you have spoken of me, excuse me, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take yourselves seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So ultimately, God's going to rebuke them pretty strongly and say to them, look, you are claiming all these truths and principles, but you are severely misapplying them and causing more harm than good. And, you know, God help us. You know, that's why I think the Bible does caution us that knowledge puffs up but love builds up because sometimes, you know, rather than just loving somebody in the midst of their difficulty or their messy, sloppy life or where they're at in a situation and just loving people through it and giving them grace and speaking some help when we can, we just want to blast them with knowledge and all of our head knowledge. And sometimes we end up, you know, again, I always think of that analogy. It's kind of like, you know, somebody being thirsty and instead of like, giving them a cup of water or letting them have a little drink from the garden hose, we just open the fire hydrant and just blast them, you know, in the face real strong with, you know, high-pressure water. And then we wonder, isn't that quenching your thirst? Why do you seem unpleasant? Because of the way that we're going about it. And this, unfortunately, is what Job's friends are doing to him. And you can tell they're actually stirring up his anger now. He's actually starting to get angry and sarcastic. Oh, wisdom's going to die with you guys. And, and now on top of suffering, they're actually making him get agitated. And he's kind of starting to get to a place where you can sense he's sort of becoming very irritable on top of things. He says, verse 4, I am one, notice, mocked by his friends who called on God and he answered him. The just and the blameless who is ridiculed. What an interesting reminder there. Job puts himself, in a sense, in the company even of Jesus, because ultimately Jesus himself, who was just and blameless, ends up being what? 
mocked and ridiculed by his friends. He came to his friends, but his friends received him not. He called on God, and God answered him. Remember on the, upon the cross, as they're hurling insults and ridiculing Jesus, what does he do? He calls on God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, we see how the Bible at times even gives us little glimmers of as Job's going through something very picturesque of even what our Lord himself went through. And just a good reminder there, just and blameless and yet ridiculed, mocked by friends. Jesus, to me, has always been the greatest example of the fact that we know what the world does with a completely perfect person. They mock him, misunderstand him, spit on him, beat him, and crucify him. Now, take that as a consolation. Because when you go through something, and you and I are not perfect, (laughs) far from it, why is this happening to me? I didn't even do anything. Well, we know what the world does with a perfectly perfect person. That. So am I really that surprised periodically when I get mistreated or something happens to me and I'm not a perfect person? Uh, We see what happened to the best of men, to what Jesus went through. And certainly at times we go through our share of mistreatment as well, even again with friends and those closest to us as Job was here. Verse five, he says, a lamp is despised by the thought of one who is at ease. That is when someone's resting the last thing they want is somebody to turn the lights on right that's just going to make you miserable when you're trying to rest you don't appreciate somebody flicking a bright light on that's what job says you despise that it is made ready for those feet to slip the tents of robbers prosper and those who provoke god are secure in what god provides by his hand so notice what job's referencing there in verse six is he's saying look if what you're saying is accurate that the righteous always prosper and the the righteous and godly are always at ease and always are secure and the wicked and the evil don't prosper they suffer and that's kind of a universal principle if you're bad evil or wicked you're not secure you suffer and go through hardship if you're righteous and godly you're at ease you're at rest and your life will never have hardships or problems then job says can you explain this to me how come i look around here in the town and he says and i see the tents of robbers and they're prospering (laughs) how how do you explain that in other words it contradicts that idea that it's not just a universal principle he says some of the tents of robbers are prospering and some of those who are provoking god are currently living secure lives and then here i am a righteous man and i'm suffering and i'm going through hardship Again, this is that reminder where we can't always deduce that the case is that righteous living brings prosperity and and that godly living means absence of suffering or immunity to difficulty or hardship. The Bible doesn't teach that. Again, remember Jesus said in the contrast, he said that rain comes on the just and the unjust. Uh, So uh, this is not just a universal blanket thing we can always bring in or we're going to misapply things. We're going to confuse ourselves at times because we'll always question when a hard thing comes into our life. It must be God angry at me or something. God must be just getting me. I must have done something, you know, and I just can't remember what it is. And we can misinterpret and put a spin on things that confuses us. And, of course, when we accuse others, it's even more difficult and hurtful to do such. So Job says, I see robbers prospering, those provoking God who are doing okay. They're secure. But verse 7, he says, but now, he says, look, uh, let's turn to the animal kingdom. Maybe they can give us some understanding. Let's ask the beasts. They will teach you and the birds of the air. They will tell you. 
or speak to the earth and it will teach you. And the fish of the sea will explain to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? The idea is God's sovereign. Even as God rules over his creation, and you can see him at work caring for his creation, the animals, the birds of the air, and at times then Bambi gets shot too, right? And sometimes Bambi dies, and sometimes hard things happen to animals. And he's like, These are animals. And the same events, he says, good and bad, happen to the animal kingdom because it's the hand of the Lord just sovereignly ruling over all things. The hand of the Lord has done this. You know, sometimes, though it's hard to swallow sometimes, there's something, you know, there is something kind of somewhat comforting about the sovereignty of God. If you trust God's nature to be able to look at any situation and say, you know what? It's the hand of the Lord. The hand of the Lord has done this. I may not understand it. I may not like it. I may not even enjoy it, but I trust a good God who's righteous and holy and pure and there's no shadow of turning in him. And if he allows something or does something, I, I, I'm okay with that. Uh, and, and I'm okay with accepting that reality. There's something about, you know, the sovereignty of God at times that allows us to sort of just, you know, not wrestle all the more when we go through the hard things that we all do sometimes. He says, verse 10, in whose hand, notice God's, in whose hand, the hand of the Lord, is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Well, I mean, that just, again, Job's re reflecting on the fragility of life. Again, every breath Job's taken, even since all the tragedy, who's kept him breathing? Last I checked, your lungs, my lungs, they're involuntary muscles. I haven't thought about breathing one time in the past 25 minutes and nine seconds since I've been teaching a Bible study. Good thing God was thinking about that or it would have been a short Bible study. I don't keep my own heart beating. Again, God breathes the breath of life into our nostrils from, from birth and, and gives us our first breath, and he keeps our heart beating and our lungs breathing, and he says, whenever God's ready, he could just turn it off. Again, we realize how dependent we are upon God as our creator, that we completely have to rely upon him even for every breath that we take of all of our lives as mankind. He says, verse 11, does not the ear test the words and the mouth taste its food? Wisdom is with aged men. And boy, that is true. I continue to see that more and more. Wisdom is with the aged men. Those of us younger, good to remember that. And with length of days comes understanding. Again, that's just natural realities there. The more years you log in the journey, uh, find those who've logged a few more length of days and they, they probably have a little more understanding of things because they've lived a little longer and gone through a little bit more. Life's a great educator. Verse 13, with him are wisdom and strength. Now, again, he's talking about God. With God are wisdom and strength. He has counsel and understanding. Boy, that's a great reminder. Do you need some understanding about something? Do you need counsel? You can go over here and talk to this person, talk to that person, but... You know, tells us in Jeremiah chapter 33 that God says to Jeremiah, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know. Uh, and how God delights, James 1 says, to give us wisdom if we just ask for it, he's willing to do that. The Bible says that God is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. 
And whether it be through his word or things he ministers to us by putting wisdom in our minds as we pray and seek him, God is a wonderful, wonderful source of counsel and understanding when we need it. He can give it to us many ways, but he's the one we should seek for such. He then goes on to speak of God's sovereignty in the remainder of the chapter. Look what he says, verse 14. If he breaks a thing down, it cannot be rebuilt. So if God lets something break down, fall apart, he says it could be that God doesn't want it rebuilt. Sometimes God will take down a wall, God will bring down something, and it may be that we're trying, I got to rebuild that, I got to rebuild that. And God's saying, no, I don't want you to rebuild that. I took it down. I, I, I caused that to be broken down, and he says it shouldn't be rebuilt. And we don't want to strive against God if he doesn't want something rebuilt. Verse 14, if he imprisons a man, there can be no release. If God allows a man to be, in a sense, stuck in a situation, whatever that may be, he says then God's not going to release that person until he's ready to separate them or let them free. So sometimes God may have us kind of feel stuck in a situation. (laughs) God says, when I'm ready to release you, I'll release you. I'm more than able to set the captives free. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the earth. With him, that's with God, are strength and prudence. The deceived and the deceiver are both his. He leads counselors away plundered. He makes fools of the judges. Now, boy, we could really give a lot of exposition on that, but we won't to be respectful to our governmental leaders. God says he can make fools of judges. He loosens the bonds of kings and binds their waist with a belt. He leads princes away plundered and overthrows the mighty. He deprives the trusted ones of speech and takes away the discernment of elders. Now, elders, again, remember, this is referring to the elders, the rulers of the land, those who would gather in the gates of the cities to make decisions judicially and nationally and things that were best in whether it was going to war or how the society was to conduct its affairs. And it isn't interesting that it speaks of how here God is able sovereignly to take away discernment. God can say, you know what? I'm going to confuse and I'm going to you know, extract discernment from these leaders. The idea is almost so that they're behaving in their human foolishness. Look what he goes on to say, verse 21. He pours contempt on princes. Again, these are rulers, governmental leaders. He can disarm the mighty. Oh, our nation is so strong. No one can defeat us. We have the greatest arsenal. Well, if God wants to disarm you, you'll be completely vulnerable. Israel saw that many, many times God could either protect them or God would easily disarm them and take his hand back, and then they'd be easily defeated by enemies. He uncovers the deep things out of darkness and brings the shadow of death to light. He makes, this is interesting, verse 23, he makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. He takes away the understanding. Here it is again. Look, he takes away the understanding of the chiefs of the people and makes them wander in a pathless wilderness. The idea is wandering through the wilderness and you can't find your path. Can't find your way through the forest. How did we get into this? How do we get out of this? and, And he says sometimes it may be God causing the confusion. That God purposely allows it for some reason. They grope in the dark without a light, and he makes them stagger around like a drunken men. 
Boy, no wonder it's so important why the Bible says to us, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That, that, you know, that righteousness, the Bible says, exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people. Because at any given time, we've seen it in the history of Israel and other world empires. And look, nothing new under the sun. The Bible says that God changes not. And here what Job says of God is still true to this day. As he's speaking of just God's sovereignty, verse 23, he makes nations great. God's made this a great nation. To me, I'm still very thankful to live here as compared to a lot of other places I can live on the earth. You complain, protest, riot, do all you want. At the end of the day, look, can I take you somewhere else to one or two other locations on the earth? And let's see how interested you are maybe in still protesting over certain things to the degree that people complain, whine, and protest about stuff. And I don't say that to mean any dis, you know, courtesy or lack of sensitivity to those who do such. But, but I'll tell you something. There is a measure of what is going on in our nation right now th- that is quite honestly – a lot of it, behavior, in the way it's being manifested. Look, we have freedom to express ourselves, but the way it's being manifested is like childish immaturity. And to me, a lot of it is a sense of entitlement and a reality that, look, you have no idea how great of a nation you really still live in. In compared to a lot, of, look, you could have been born, I could have been born anywhere else on this globe. Anywhere. God could have led us, and those of us who've been in other places on the earth, I could have been born there, but this is where God let me be born. This is where, and and America certainly, it's not a perfect nation, but God's been very gracious and made this in a lot of ways, still to this day, and and it's a mess, I'll I'll give you that. But it's still a very great nation, and and I I do appreciate that, and my patriotism will never trump my citizenship in heaven. I, I don't agree with that either. And I think that's another grave mistake that many people are making. And I'll go so far to say, even if it steps on people's toes, I think that's a, a mistake that a lot of the church is even making at this time period. Is people are getting more caught up in patriotism than they are what's biblical. What does it mean to be a Christian? You know, we hear a lot about government overreach. Well, what does the Bible say about government overreach? If they compel you to go one mile, just go with them too. Rome was into government overreach brutally. They mastered government overreach. They treated people horrible, the Roman Empire, in the days of Jesus. And, and everybody wasn't whining about government overreach. What they were doing is saying, how do we handle that as Christ followers? How do we respond differently than, than everyone else in the society that's experiencing the government abuse and government overreach? Again, I don't discount that these things go on, but... I think to some degree, we have to be very careful. God makes nations great, and God can destroy them. God can take them right back down. And God is more than able in his sovereignty to work through these things. And sometimes God is sovereignly doing things in the spiritual realm, like Job. Job has no idea what's going on in the spiritual realm. But things are going on in his life that are difficult for Job. And God's doing something here in the realm of the spirit that Job's oblivious to, but it's affecting Job in the physical realm. Same with us. God at times may be doing things in the spiritual realms that we're not even aware of what he's doing. Spiritual warfare and battles and things that are going on. But, we're, but we experience it here, right? That's why the Bible says, you know, that, that we walk in the flesh, but we don't war in the flesh. We experience spiritual warfare and challenges, but we are to seek to respond spiritually with spiritual weapons and how we respond to things. I harped on that way too long. You can send me emails afterwards. Chapter 13. 
Behold, my eye has seen all this, Job says. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, he says, I also know. I am not inferior to you. But he says, I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. Now, again, what Job's longing for here is he wants God to justify him. He's saying, I want to have a conversation about the Almighty, not so much because Job is wanting to uh, get God even to give him answers for why this is going on. But what he wants is God to show up and to prove that he's correct and his friends are improperly accusing him. And he wants God to show up and to act on his behalf. But unfortunately, Job is going to end up getting a little too demanding to where even God's going to confront Job towards the end of this because he kind of gets a little pushy in his frustration, as we can all do in our humanity sometimes. He says, I want to speak to God. I want to reason with him. He says of his friends, but you are forgers of lies. You are worthless physicians. Again, worthless physician. What's the problem with that? The idea is Job saying a worthless physician is what? Someone who can't diagnose properly what's going on inside of somebody's body. So if you can't diagnose them properly, you can't provide the treatment. You don't have the right antidote or the way to bring them back to health or to deal with their problem. And Job says, that's what you are. You're worthless physicians. You're not properly diagnosing what's going on in my life. And he says, so your solutions are worthless. It's not giving me any help. If anything, he's saying, I'm just, you know, suffering more at your hands because you're like worthless physicians, he says. Oh, that you would be silent, he says. That would be your wisdom. (laughs) I'm sorry, Joe's just sarcastic sometimes. You know, the wisest thing you could do, just be quiet. You know, that old adage that said something along the lines of, um, it's going to slip my mind now. Better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Such great truth to that. Better to just be silent and let people think you're a fool. In other words, that guy never says anything. He's not, I wonder what he's thinking right now. He's not saying anything. Maybe maybe he's just foolish. The rest of us got ideas. He's not saying anything. It's just sometimes it's better to, don't even let people know than to open your mouth and be like, yeah, he's a fool like everybody else. Yeah, I mean, he just—he is just as dumb as everyone else. <laughs> and Job says, "Oh, your wisdom," he says, "that you would just be silent. The idea is stop suggesting things. Now, hear my reasoning," he says, "and heed the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak wickedly for God? Ouch, that hurts. You know, when I speak for God, I don't ever want to speak wickedly or hurtful." He says, will you speak wickedly for God and talk deceitfully for him? In other words, you're misguiding God's people. That's a scary thing. Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? Will it be well when he searches you out or can you mock him as one mocks a man? He will surely rebuke you. If you secretly show partiality, will not his excellence make you afraid and the dread of him fall upon you? Your platitudes, he says, are proverbs of ashes. They're like just worthless ashes. They just burn up into smoke. And your defenses to your arguments are defenses of clay. They're, they're weak. They break down very easily. He says, verse 13, hold your peace with me. Let me speak. Then come, let on me what may. Why do I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hands? Now, the idea there, the... 
imagery, my flesh and my teeth and my life in my hands. It's kind of like an animal who's caught prey and it's holding it in its teeth, but therefore when something attacks it, it has to put down what would be beneficial to itself to have to address and protect itself. And Job's saying, that's what I'm having to do here. I'm having to spend all my time defending and protecting myself uh, rather than just partaking of what would be most helpful for me in this time. Verse 15, I love this statement, great, great statement of Job comes out of the difficulty of all of this. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Wow, that is a statement of faith, especially in our hard times, and we don't even know why it's going on or even if God's causing it, allowing it to be able to say again, even if God is the one who's brought the sword against me, he says, one thing I will not do. I may struggle, I may wrestle, I may you know, sometimes get confused or question things or say wrong things or struggle emotionally or mentally, but he says, I will not stop trusting God. Why would I ever stop trusting God? Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Boy, that's a statement of faith there, and sometimes a great statement we need to cling on to and kind of walk out in application even in our own lives. He says, even so, I will defend my own ways before him, He also shall be my salvation, for a hypocrite could not come before him. Listen carefully to my speech and to my declaration with your ears. See, now I have prepared my case, and I know I shall be vindicated. Who is he who will contend with me? If now I hold my tongue, I perish. In other words, what Job's calling to mind here is saying, look, if I were a hypocrite, he says, verse 16, he says, why would I want to enter into contention and, and talk through it with God? He's saying, if I was in some known sin, some conscious evil, why would I want to have a dialogue? He said, why would I want to bring that to God's attention? When somebody's in deliberate sin, they don't want to bring it to God's attention. They're trying to hide their deliberate sin. So Job's saying, why would you think I'm in a deliberate sin? And yet here I am saying, look, bring me to court before God. Let God evaluate my life and search me out. Verse 20, it seems he's talking to God now here. He says, only two things do not... Do to me, then I will hide myself from you. Withdraw your hand far from me. God, he says, take your hand off of my life, please. It's it's too much, he says. And let not the dread of you make me afraid. Then call and I will answer or let me speak and then you respond to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. In other words, God, I I know that there are things in my life that at times are not right. And he says, God, please, I'm asking. I want to have a pure heart before you. Allow me to quickly know and be conscious of my sins. I, I admire this about Job. In the midst of being accused of it, he says, you know what, God? There's a little bit of wisdom in everything, even in bad counsel. You know, there's, there's some measure of truth. I've learned over the years, even when people say things that may not be maybe the best things to say, there's always the benefit of saying, Lord, is there some measure of truth in that? Is there something I can learn from that? And Job says, since they're searching out my sin, he says, God, you know what? If anything, as I'm in this time, make me more conscious of my sins, God. Help me to see more the things that may be transgression and sinful. He wants to be more aware because he wants to live in purity and closeness with God as he goes through these hard things. Verse 24, why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Boy, that's sad sometimes that that's where our minds go to, that God's turned his face away or he's treating you as an enemy. Sometimes we can feel like that mentally or emotionally when we're going through struggles. We feel like God's 
actually against us when he's not. Will you frighten me like a leaf driven to and fro? And will you pursue dry stubble? For you write bitter things against me. God, I feel like you've you know, prescribed just bitterness for my life and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. Is that what's happening, God? The sins of my youth are finally catching up with me now. Many years later, the crops just late and blossoming from sins of my youthfulness. You put my feet in stocks and watch closely all my paths, and you set a limit for the soles of my feet, indicating, God, I feel like you've got me stuck, like my feet in stocks. I feel like I am stuck in this season of struggling and hardship. He says, verse 28, man decays like a rotten thing. Well, that's some ways true. Like a garment that is moth-eaten. Man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. Again, what's Job doing? He's recalling this reality of just the brevity of life, the shortness of life. He compares his day to like a flower that grows up and quickly it it flees away, it dies rather quickly. I mean, great statement, verse 1, he says, man is born of woman, is few of days and full of trouble. Well, that's it's, it's kind of very accurate. Life is short, we often say, and at the same time, life's also hard. Life is short and life is hard. Those two things kind of don't tend to change. They're kind of just realities. Life is short, and he says, and life is full of trouble. It's It's not just a constant celebration on this earth, he says. And do not open your eyes, verse 3, on such a one, and bring me into judgment with yourself. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? In other words, God, even if I am unclean, I don't know how to clean myself up. Only, of course, God is able to cleanse us by the blood of Christ. Ultimately, he says no one can clean himself. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. Look away from him that he may rest till like a hired man he finishes his day. In other words, Job's implying there, again, just God's full awareness of everything in our life as well as his full control. He says in verse 5 things that sound very familiar to Psalm 139. He says his days are determined and the number of his months is with God, you've appointed his limits so that no one can pass. Again, Psalm 139 tells us that all of our days are written into God's book before one of them comes to be. Now, there are two ways of looking at it. Some people look at that as the idea is God has completely inscribed out your story, and so therefore, total sovereignty, you have no control over everything, and everything in your life is just the sovereignty of God, and God's written your script and it's like, sorry, buddy, there's your script. If you don't like the movie, talk to the producer. And some people look at life that way. The other way of looking at that is God, to some degree, orchestrates, allows, permits certain things, brings certain seasons and situations and chapters in our life. But our personal decisions and how we respond to things and how we handle things also do have a, a degree of effect upon what does happen in our life. And another way of seeing that is not God has locked us into some script, but God, knowing all things because he is the beginning and he is the end, is, yes, sovereign over all things to a degree, 
but at the same time, simultaneously allows us to walk in personal responsibility and accountability, and he's aware of the whole script before life begins. In other words, the dumb choice I was going to make in 1983, when I was born, before I was born, it was all written in God's book, and God said, yeah, yeah, that's gonna, I know that's going to be really bad, but we'll clean them up afterwards. And, and it's all written in his book. Every good decision, every bad decision, every event, the different seasons we were going to go through, the different experiences, all written in God's book before one of it came to be. God knows every day, every month, our days are determined, the number of the months, exactly the appointed limits of how long we're going to live and not get. All that's in God's book. God knows it all. To me, the way that I look at that is not God's removed control from my life, but the way I look at that is that God says, look, I'm fully aware of the entire book. And because I know the book and you don't know the book, the best thing for you to do is to say really close to me, Tony. Because I don't know about you, but the way my life's been lived thus far, it's kind of like I get about a page at a time. And as I'm living that day, hour by hour, paragraph by paragraph, I'm getting a little more information. Okay, that's what's on. But I, God never lets me go like this. What's on the next page here? Not even the next page. I think sometimes, I, sometimes when I'm reading the script and I'm experiencing, I kind of sense what's probably on the next page. And sometimes I'm right. Sometimes I'm totally wrong, but I never know what's three pages ahead. I never know what's even the next chapter. But what I do know is there's someone who does. There's an author. The Bible says that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. That's why it's important to stay really close to the author of the book, because he knows everything. The best thing you could do is just stay close to him, because you'll be a lot more in tune with what is going on. And God says, look, I know what's on the next page. Stay close to me. I'll give you wisdom in the midst of your hardship. Don't turn away. Don't get angry. Don't try and go back three chapters and figure out what was it three chapters ago that's causing this chapter. No, no, no. Just stay on the page, son. Stay on that page. Stay close to me. Let me help you, guide you through it. I know what's on the next page. I even know what's in the next chapter. And here's the best part. God goes, and there's a really great ending. Fantastic ending. And I even know exactly when the ending's going to come, the exact day and month. I've set all the limits. You can't extend it one day beyond anything that God's determined because God's already got the full record of it. You know, great reminders for us that though we don't always understand all things, we have a God who loves us and knows us 